Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 30. The Beaten. Archie Beaton was sat in his office reading a few emails when he first smelt the smoke. Initially thought it might have been part of the celebrations, a hog roast or a bonfire perhaps. Both were popular at clan events. The thick walls of the castle normally absorbed all external sound unless it was from directly in front of his window, so he was usually unperturbed by any distractions. He pushed back from his desk and walked to the window. Immediately he knew something terrible was happening. From his tiny office he could just see into the corner of the outer ward where clansmen were grouped and bound. He then noticed that the music had ceased and that he could hear the shout of orders. On reflection he thought that the smoke did not smell of roasting pig but burning timbers. He rushed to the door, opening it a fraction to see what lay beyond. Smoke was already thick in the stairwell. He knew that he did not have long before he would be trapped. Closing the door he looked round his office to see what might aid his escape. Not much. Taking his skin dew, he cut the left sleeve off his shirt and, for lack of any other liquid, pissed on it to create a membrane to catch as much of the smoke as possible. He was glad the castle cleaners couldn't see the mess he'd made of the carpet. Gagging slightly, he nonetheless thanked the stars that the few pints of beer he'd consumed meant that the smell was not overpowering. Binding the sodden sleeve around his face, he dropped to his knees and opened the door. The draught from the stairs was sweeping the smoke upwards in a spiral, and it was already impenetrably thick above him. At floor level he could still see the stairs, and he rapidly crawled down them as fast as his hands and knees could bear, cursing the sharp-edged stone steps all the way down the two flights to the main floor of the castle. He could feel the temperature rise as he descended, and when he pushed open the door at the bottom he could hear the crackle of burning wood too. So far he had not seen any bodies, but as he came onto the main landing opposite the Red Banner Hall he saw someone lying in the doorway. Although it felt suicidal to be going towards the fire, his sense of Hippocratic duty pushed him forward. The body by the door was a Campbell, judging by his tartan. His eyes were open, but his pulse was gone. One hand was clutched at his throat and was soaked in blood. There was nothing Archie could do for him. He looked in the hall for any others. The blaze was roaring. The table and much of the furniture was alight, and the roof beams had caught too. It wasn't going to be long before the whole lot would come crashing down. There were two dark and still figures on the far side we could not reach. There was one arm lying outstretched from his side of the table. He grabbed it and pulled the body towards him, feeling for a pulse. There was a flutter, no more than that, but he was still alive. Just. Archie yanked on the arm with all his might, pulling the body out of the room and towards the stairs. Once at the top of the flight, he cradled the man's head to protect it as he dragged the rest of the body down the steep flight of stairs and out into the courtyard of the fountain. He could feel his world blackening as he reached the bottom, and the doorway seemed to be disappearing away from him down a long black tunnel. With the last of his energy, he fell rather than walked through the doorway and into the air beyond. Unseen but strong hands grabbed him and pulled him through into the outer ward. As he drifted in and out of consciousness, all he could hear was the confusion of shouts and people running. Finally, he could resist the black void no longer, and he surrendered himself to it happily as it opened up and swallowed him whole. Chapter 31. To the River Darkness was almost total by the time they had cleared the summit of Benbuya and started down the other side. 
For obvious reasons, they could not use the headlights on the cat, and the battering that the sturdy vehicle was taking as it thumped into holes and through the underbrush meant that a breakage was only a matter of time. Sure enough, it died as they were about halfway down the slope, the front offside wheel being smashed at such an angle that it would move no further. Nin swore and kicked the offending tyre, but there was nothing to be done. Charlie riffled through the weapons in the back and distributed them around the group. He handed Gillespie a chunky semi-automatic rifle, wordlessly showing him where the safety catch was. The temperature was falling fast and they were hardly dressed for a night on the hill. Adrenaline was driving them on for now, and as long as they kept moving they were okay. Whether they could last a night outside was another matter. The pale moon started to rise, helping to illuminate their way. In any case, Kirsty and Nin knew this area at the back of their hands, and the dark was little impediment. There was no cover here of any description. Ben Bouye slid down into a tight glen with the river fine at the bottom flowing east, sandwiched on the other side of Milnagawa, the steep side of the hill. To the left was Ben Voidek, and the Shira flowed southwest from there down the glen which took its name. In the middle of these three peaks, the two rivers met, creating a natural barrier. This was what they were aiming for and was what they had to cross if they had to have any chance of escape. As they came off onto the level, the ground got softer, and soon they were sinking up to their knees in freezing boggy water. Gillespie did not know how much more he could take. His legs were already weak after the cat ride, and were now jelly. As they finally reached the river, Gillespie looked despondently at the water swirling below. Although it was not very wide, probably no more than 60 feet, it was cold, deep and fast-flowing. There was no way they could wade across and there was no bridge or other means to traverse it. Nin and Charlie split up looking for tree trunks or anything that would float, but there was nothing. They could now see the headlights of the five pursuing cats which had split up. Two were searching the lower reaches of Benbuya, while the other three were exploring the riverbank. One of these had started following the river in their direction. They would soon be caught. They needed to act. While Gillespie stayed out of sight under the lee of the riverbank, Nin and Charlie crept forward into the undergrowth, their black clothing making them all but invisible. When the cat was 20 yards away, Kirsty coolly stood up with her hands raised above her head. The occupants of the cat shouted at her in fast and fierce Gaelic, covering her with their rifles as the vehicle drove towards her. As they got closer, they ordered her to kneel on the ground while keeping her hands in the air. At the very moment the cat pulled to a stop, when the men were slightly distracted and off balance, the, the trap was sprung. Nin and Charlie surged out of the undergrowth on either side of the vehicle, swords drawn, grabbing the two men from the back and pulling them to the ground, while Gillespie stuck his semi-automatic rifle through the driver's window. One of them squeezed off around, but it went high, missing Kirsty. He didn't get another chance, as he was battered unconscious by Charlie using the basket hilt of his sword. Nin had meanwhile taken care of the other one, before he pushed Gillespie aside and dragged the confused driver from his seat, raining punches down on his head. However, that unfortunate shot had alerted the other vehicles, and they were now racing towards them across the bog. Kirsty shouted at them to strip the cams of their coats. Although it took precious seconds, it was imperative that they had some warmer clothing. This was no time for politeness as they wrestled the coats off the stricken bodies. The other vehicles were almost upon them as Charlie started the engine. Gillespie climbed in the cab with Nin and Kirsty in the back, and they streaked off along the riverbank with their enemies in hot pursuit. They were just about keeping ahead of them, but there was no way they could outrun them forever. Gillespie saw that one cat had split off and was going to try and cut them off as the river curved. Charlie seemed unconcerned, focused completely on the rough terrain. Suddenly he threw the wheel over, driving straight through a dip in the bank and into the river. The water was deep here, and it immediately swept the cat off its tyres and out into the current. Their pursuers arrived seconds later, but did not dare follow into the dark water.
The cat was tossed like a cork and Charlie fought the wheel, trying to use its tyres to steer it across the water to freedom on the other side. Gillespie sat wide-eyed, gripping the dashboard as water sloshed over the sides. They only had a limited amount of time before the cat became waterlogged and sank. Without warning, they hit a submerged rock. The vehicle shook violently. Kirsty, who'd been hanging on the back, slipped with the force of the impact and was thrown into the water. Nin tried to grab her, but there was nothing he could do. She was cast upon the muddy bank, and they were immediately swept downstream out of reach. Seconds later, the enemy were upon her, pulling her out of the river and standing over her. Gillespie could hear Nin thumping the roof of the cab in frustration as the vicious current swept them round a bend, out of sight and into the darkness. Chapter 32 Crossing the Wade The rush of water was deafening. Gillespie tried not to think how much longer they could last in this freezing torrent. The water was now nearly at the lip of the door and was seeping fast into the footwell. They were going to sink very soon, at which point they would either drown or once again become fair game for their pursuers. He was briefly relieved when the Campbells had disappeared behind the last bend in the river, but no longer. This was suicidal. Charlie was trying to steer them out of the current and onto the bank of the opposite shore. Every now and then the wheels would bite on a rock and the vehicle would be thrown forward, scrabbling for grip. But the river was too deep and once traction was lost they were swept onwards again, so close and yet so far. Just as Gillespie was contemplating how to extricate himself from the vehicle once it was beyond the point of no return, it was over. As they approached the next bend, Charlie managed to steer them onto a sandbank cast up by the river's course, and as soon as their tyres sank into its soft, yielding grains, they were off, out of the water and racing across the far shore, water pouring from their undercarriage. They crashed through the bushes and boggy grass that covered the glen floor, as Charlie tried to put as much distance between them and the riverbank as he could. Because it was so dark and Charlie was driving without the benefit of headlights, it was a rough and bumpy ride. After smashing his knees on the dashboard for the umpteenth time, Gillespie was beginning to wonder if he preferred to take his chances with the enemy, rather than sustain any more of this punishment. Finally, as they started to crawl up the hill out of the bog, the going improved, and Charlie located a drove path that wound along the side of Milnagawa to the north. They followed the glen round, and soon they were completely hidden from the view of those in the valley behind, freeing them to use their headlights and allowing them to make faster progress. The drove road was wet and rutted, but nothing that the cat couldn't take in its stride, even in the dark. Soon they could see the mighty Benloy rising to their right, its top snow-capped, its steep ridges sweeping down to the valley below, forcing the drove road to the northeast. After another hour of hard pounding, they were at the bottom of a cleft between the mountains and surrounded by oppressive peaks. Darkness encompassed them, and the crunch of ice under their tyres was a reminder of how far the temperature had fallen. They were certainly thankful for the stolen coats now. Charlie pulled the cat over and, having turned off the lights, killed the engine. Silence and blackness descended. It was the first time they'd really had a chance to speak since the river and Kirsty's capture. Nin got down from the back of the cat, grim-faced. He ransacked the various compartments until he found some tobacco, then rolled himself a cigarette, which he shared with Charlie. They offered Gillespie a puff, but he politely refused. The glowing orange tip was the only light in the whole glen, except for the stars and the waning moon. Gillespie suddenly felt exhausted, as if a stopper had been pulled and the wind let out of him. He was collapsing in on himself. The long day, combined with numerous stressful encounters, the vibrations of the cat, the cold, the lack of food, it was all too much. Maybe he should just lie down by the track and go to sleep until the morning. 
Yes, that seemed the best idea. If you just lay down, everything would be okay. It was the icy water that brought him back. He found himself lying by the side of the cat. Charlie and Nin standing over him with concerned looks on their faces. Are you okay? Charlie asked. You just fainted away. Yes, I think so. I'm just so tired, said Gillespie. And hungry for that matter. What time is it anyway? It's just past ten, Nin said. We've got to try and make it to Glenorchy before it gets light. My cousin Don just lives over the Wade. If we can make it to him before light, we'll probably escape detection. We'll need to stick to the side of Ben Loy and then cut across the Wade. Assuming we don't bump into any Campbells, we'll be up Glenorchy and settling into a nice cooked breakfast before you know it. The sound of that cooked breakfast just made Gillespie feel even hungrier, and with his stomach rumbling, he asked what the food situation was. Pretty pissed poor, if I'm honest, said Charlie. I found a few chocolate wafers in the cat, but apart from that, nothing. Obviously, there's plenty of water around, so grab yourself a drink. At this, he gestured to the burns and pools of the glen with a sweep of his hand. They divided up the wafers, greedily devouring them in a matter of seconds. Gillespie bent down and cupped his hands in the freezing burn, scooping some icy but delicious water into his mouth. Feeling a little better, he climbed back into the front seat of the cat, and Nin got in to drive. Charlie was consigned to standing in the back and making rude comments about Nin's driving. At least in the cab, Gillespie had access to the rather meagre heat coming from the engine. He wondered what had happened to Kirsty. Her shout as she fell in the river haunted him. It was a subject they had conspicuously not discussed when they had stopped. She was gone, and there was nothing they could do. The grinding of the drivetrain was relentless, as was the jolting of the suspension as they smashed into potholes and bounced out the other side. Every now and then they would come to a burn, and the consultations would be taken between Charlie and Nin as to which was the best route across. They got stuck a few times, and Gillespie's legs were now caked in freezing mud from helping to push the cat. Despite the thick down jacket that he had stolen, he was now seriously cold as cold as he'd ever been in his life. He was beginning to lose the feeling in his fingertips and with it his ability to grip anything. He turned to look at Nin, hunched over the wheel, his cornflower blue eyes muted in the lamplight from the speedometer, focused on the ruts and bumps in the tracks ahead. The cab of the cat was starting to ice up now, and every now and then Gillespie gave the windscreen a wipe, but generally just ended up smearing the screen rather than cleaning it. He wondered how much longer it would be as they watched the hours grind by. They would stop occasionally to jump around to try and warm up, Charlie and Nin swapping places while insisting that Gillespie stayed where he was. They didn't trust him to drive and they didn't want him dying of hypothermia either. The drove path gave out, just as Ben Loy met Glenlochy. The ridge that had shadowed them to their right melted away into the Glen's wide floodplain. They had to be careful here as there were more houses and they didn't want the noise of the cat to waken any trigger-happy residents. There were spinnies of silver birch rustling their branches in the chill wind and a few rounds that still carried last autumn's fruits on laden branches. They could now see the Wade Road ahead, tarmac snaking around the bottom of the glen, following the path of the Yorkie River from the high mountains down to Loch Orr. It was well lit, and even at this hour there was a fair amount of traffic racing up it in both directions. Nin turned to Gillespie and said, That's the main route coming up from the border at Arica goes all the way to Oban and carries most of the business and trade coming into the west of the Republic. It will be difficult to cross unseen. We should sit here for a little while and see if it's being watched. He turned off the ignition and rolled himself another cigarette. I'm curious. Why do you call them wades? Gillespie asked, at which Nin spat a gobbit of phlegm out of the cat and onto the heather. And why do you always spit at the mention of the name Wade? Nin looked at him and then very deliberately swiveled his head, spit out of the door again, before returning to look at Gillespie with an added wink. 
General Wade was the motherfucker that was sent to pacify us poor gales before Cumberland came to murder us. General Wade, at which he resisted expectorating for once, came and carved six roads into the flesh of our land so that he could march his troops and not have to contend with the hills, the bogs and the rivers. He understood that roads could subdue and enslave us in a way that armies since the Romans have failed to. Of course, we've been beaten in battles and bowed our heads and knees to kings and queens in Edinburgh and London from time to time. But we'd never been occupied until Wade came. He built the roads and bridges and forts and barracks that would have shackled and imprisoned us if King Charlie hadn't slain Cumberland at Culloden. They're still here, but there are as many gales that wish they weren't as are happy that they are. Of course, we use them. Just don't expect us to be grateful for them. As you'll see, there haven't been many roads built in the Republic since Wade. And like as not, there won't be, especially here near the border. We don't want to make it too easy for the British to roll their tanks and troops in. The lack of roads has always put them off in the past, no reason to think it won't in the future. Wade deserved a long swim in a deep loch with a rock tied to his ankles, if you ask me. Roads are the devil's work, and no mistake. After 20 minutes spent watching the Wade, they had a pretty good feel for the flow of traffic. It was erratic, but there did not seem to be any patrols operating along it, and following a quick consultation, they decided to move before they froze. Charlie took over the driving, grateful to be out of the draught of the wind. He nosed the cat up onto a grassy bank that ran across a boggy piece of open ground. There were scrubby willows and a few ash lining the bank on either side to shield them from prying eyes, if there were any. However, there was nothing to meet the sound of their engine, which seemed deafening to Gillespie. Charlie motored along the bank until it was just shy of the road, where there was a ditch to negotiate thick with shrubs and bushes. Waiting for a moment when no headlights could be seen in either direction, Charlie accelerated the cat down the bank into the ditch. Gillespie's window exploded with branches and leaves, the bog myrtle he could smell, the gorse he could feel. The cat shook from side to side as its wheels churned and gouged the path up the steep embankment and onto the road. Slewing in a wide arc as Charlie wrestled the wheel round, the cat was soon purring east along the wade, making for the turn that they hoped was only half a mile or so away. The black tarmac was smooth as silk, and after the hours on the hillsides of Argyle, it felt like a magic carpet ride. Couldn't they stay in its rip and be swept along all the way to Araka and beyond, back to civilization with its boredom and mundanity? Gillespie had had enough of this moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute existence. His body was drained of adrenaline, and his brain was bursting with too many thoughts, fears, memories and hopes. All he wanted to do was rest. A few trucks sped past him in the opposite direction, heading from the border towards Oban, their sides adorned with tarpaulins advertising hauliers from far-flung locations such as Krakow or Valencia. They could now see the turning in the distance, just on a corner as the road bent round to follow the Glen East. Gillespie could hear Nin chambering around in his rifle while Charlie pulled a sidearm out of its holster and laid it on the seats between them. Charlie swung the wheel and made the turn. The blackness of the road ahead was blinding after the lights of the wade. As the sodium orange started to fade out behind them, Gillespie felt as if he was also relinquishing his last opportunity to turn back, to return to the real world and leave this madness behind. Chapter 33. Fiddler's Rest It was only after the second dram of whisky that Gillespie actually felt like he was beginning to warm up. While ordinarily having whisky with breakfast might seem like the fastest route to an appointment with the devil, Right now, it made perfect sense. The table was a picture of silent concentration. 
three grown men wolfing down plates laden with browned and split sausages, crispy bacon, crunchy-edged hash browns, pale diced mushrooms with caramelised onions, tomato halves blackened and seared, the crumbly slice of black pudding speckled with glistening jewels of fat, fried eggs with yellow domes marooned in puddles of frilled albumen, all swimming in a glue for baked beans. Gillespie pushed the crust of toast around the plate, chasing down and mopping up the last of the yolk that clung viscously to the willow tree pattern, his eyes drawn into the alluring Chinese water garden with its doves and pagodas, each revealed one by one from under the carpet of cadmium yellow. At last, Charlie spoke for all of them. Fuck me, that was good. I haven't enjoyed anything so much since I went down on those four fishermen in Lowick, and that must have been a good ten years ago. He belched contentedly at the memory. Nin rolled his eyes and turned his attention to his coffee. The smoky tendrils of the whiskey were probing the muscles and tendons in every nook and corner of Gillespie's body, seeking out his tension and pain points and gently massaging them, kneading them into submission. He felt like a jellyfish washed upon the shore, unable to stand, to move, hopeless and helpless, cast up and accepting of whatever was going to happen next. The room was starting to spin slightly. He needed to rest. More than anything, he needed to rest. Don MacArthur sat watching the motley crew at their breakfast with an amused eye. Bound in a tattered tartan dressing gown, his shambolic appearance was accentuated by a wild mop of hair. It looked as though it had been back home many years previously and left untroubled since. He took a deep pull on his vape, expelling a cloud of apple cinnamon from his lungs. He idly watched as the prodigious cloud thinned and disappeared into the air above them. In the background, the radio played, his foot unconsciously tapping away to the rhythm. The first smear of dawn could be seen beginning to silhouette the hills that surrounded the house to the east. Gulping down a tarry slug of coffee from the bottom of his cup, he stood and offered to show them where they could sleep. When they tumbled through his door, they'd look more dead than alive, the pallid grey of the truly cold. Unable to speak or walk, they'd staggered and clutched their way from the front door to the warmth of the kitchen, where his range pumped out life-affirming heat all day and night. It was amazing what a cup of tea and a dram of whiskey could achieve, rousing him to near consciousness. And the second dram and a plate of breakfast washed down with a pot of Guatemala's finest completed the transformation, its precious alchemy restoring them to speech and humanity. Nin tried to start thanking Don for his hospitality, but Don waved away his words. Nay bother, nay bother. Now listen, you all need some kip. And while you're catching up on some well-earned rest, I'm going into Tindrum and see what the lie of the land is. Nothing much on the radio apart from Spraff about McCallum Moore being summoned to the Collier to explain himself next week. I'll be able to get a better idea from the lads down at the Grigorex Clement. That bar is always hotching with loud mowers and strong opinions. I should be able to get a pretty good idea of what's happening. He led them through the hallway and up the stairs, directing Nin and Charlie into a large double room and Gillespie into what must have been a child's room, filled as it was with posters and toys. Barely pausing long enough to strip off his road-worn clothes, Gillespie was fast asleep before his head hit the pillow. Chapter 34. Stirring. John Lamont crossed his office and shoogled round his desk. He ran his finger up the screen to activate the monitor, briefly peering into the retina scanner to access his server and opening up his contacts to find the details he needed. Flicking through a few names, McPherson, McGillivray, McIntosh, he came to one he was looking for, Jimmy Singh Davidson of Clan Dye over in Dingwall on the west coast. 
He dialed the number and turned his chair to look out of the window as the sun began to set at the end of another short, late winter day. Yes? The terse voice came down the receiver. Ah, hello, Jimmy. It's John, John Lamont. How are you? The tone down the phone immediately became much more welcoming. Ah, how are you, John? Great to hear from you. Who's Jimmy down the phone. How can I help you? Lamont recoiled with distaste at Jimmy's ingratiating tones. I was just calling to see if you'd heard what was going on over at Dundarav. No, I haven't. What's been happening? Have they chosen a new chief yet? Well, funny you should mention that. But they have, or should I say, had. What do you mean? Jimmy Singh asked, uncertainly. I mean what I said. They chose a new chief, but he's already dead. Seemingly it was all a bit too much for McCallan Moore. He has totally overreached himself. It was supposed to be a simple law and order enforcement action. Try and find the perpetrators of the RSC attack. But what has he done? Shot the place up, burned it to the ground, killed Alexander McNachton and goodness knows how many others. It's chaos. This is what happens when you have overmighty magnets like McCallan Moore. Eventually it goes to their head and they think they're above the law. Well, us small clans need to stick together or we'll all be swallowed up. Are you going to be in Oban next week? I think there's going to be a special session to discuss this. I think it's very important that we small clans make a point. What'll be left of the Republic if we allow him to get away with this? Oh good, so you agree. Fantastic. Well, this is what I have in mind. After another 20 minutes, John put the phone down, well pleased with his call. Next he called Ewan McNeil of Barra, and then Dougal McDougal of Dunolly, Tam Matheson of Atterdale, and Dervaguila Farkerson of Kindrocket. All of them shared the same reaction. Warming to his theme, he picked up the phone to a much more challenging target and slightly hesitantly dialed Katrona McLean of Dewitt's number. What an unexpected, and may I say, unlooked-for pleasure, came a voice as smooth as velvet down the phone. What could be happening that the great John Lamont, the warden of the Clyde, should feel the need to call me at this hour, I wonder, she continued, letting the words fall from her lips like honey from a knife. He ran out his spiel, which by and large worked pretty well with the lesser chiefs. She listened, silently, waiting for the end before saying, My, my, what a little pot of trouble you're cooking up. Quite surpassing yourself this time. You do seem to have it in for poor old McAllen Moore. And with a harder edge to her voice. Not that he doesn't deserve it, mind you. And what, can I ask, are you looking to gain out of this? And what crumbs might there be falling from your table to those of us who choose to support your nefarious little plan, distasteful though it may be? Katrona, why don't you just ask me what you want? That would be much quicker, don't you think? He knew he was about to be forced to give away something precious, and he sure as hell wasn't just going to offer it up. No, 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 John, you misunderstand me. As I see it, you called me asking for my help to stitch up the most powerful warlord on the west coast of the Republic so that you might profit from his demise. I really think it's beholden on you to think a little harder on what you're offering first. As for all this bullshit about we small clans must stick together, can I remind you that I have over a thousand men in arms, probably five times that number of reserves, so I'm not sure I would categorise myself in that way. You know as well as I do that trying to take down McCallan Moore will upset the balance of power in the Republic, and who knows where that will end. All I do know is that hooded crows like John Lamont are the only ones that benefit from the likely carnage. If I'm to get involved, I want to do it with my eyes open. Can I suggest that before the Collier meeting next week, you let me know what you're offering, and I promise to give it my closest consideration.
Before he could respond, she cut the line. He hung up, resisting the urge to smash the receiver in pieces. He could feel the flush of blood rising up his neck and into his face. The tick above his right eye started to twitch uncontrollably, the vein pulsing as his anger was stoked into rage. Pushing himself back from his desk, he shouted for Alan Stewart. As he entered, John Lamont thrust his finger into Alan's chest, eyes bulging, lips pulled back in a snarl. Saying nothing, he swept past him out of the room and down the stairs to his cellar to vent his anger on a poor unfortunate. Alan sighed and followed. It was likely to be a long night. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. Mm-hmm.